that's what I love about the gospel is that his word doesn't return void, which means it's going to change us. That's our promise. And we don't leave this place the same way we came in because that's the power of his word. And so my message tonight is stand. And I don't know about you guys, but just being transparent, I need a lot of help. I'm not someone who can typically do everything. And so my second grader is actually doing fractions right now. And I have had to go to the bathroom and ask Suri, how do you add fractions? Because it's been a little while. I think I did that in ninth grade. <laughs> and she's doing it in second grade. You know, I lean on my husband to do our checkbook and our books. I lean on Isaiah, you know, to with the staff here at Celebration to do the music assets. For Jonathan and the media, I lean on a lot of different people. And in fact... My daughter saw me um, kind of disciplining my son, and then she started to discipline my son. And I said, Avery, I'm Owen's mommy. He has one mommy, and that's my job. And she looked right back at me, and she said, and it's obvious you need some help. <laughs> and she wasn't even trying to sass me. I think she was just being very Oprah about it. Like, let's just get to the bottom of it. And I said, Avery, that's what Jesus and Daddy are for. You know, let me be the mom. But the fact of the matter is, is the kids keep you humble. And I do need help. I need a lot of help. And sometimes because I need a lot of help, I tend to project that on God. And I assume that he needs a lot of help. That because I need a lot of different resources and I need a lot of different things, that he needs a lot of different things and he needs a lot of different resources. But the fact of the matter is, is that he's pretty good at making a lot of things out of nothing. You know, everything that we hear, taste, smell, see, feel, he made out of absolutely nothing. And this blows, you blows your mind. He made everything you can't touch, see, taste, or feel out of nothing. Everything comes from him. Everything was in him. And so we assume that because we need a lot of things or we look at a problem and we say, well, it's going to take a lot of this and a little bit of that and more of that, that we assume that God looks at a problem and says it's going to take more of this and more of that and all of that. And tonight I just want to kind of rest on the fact that God doesn't need a lot. He just needs one or two people who are just willing to stand. You know, I garden maybe twice a year, and to say that I garden is probably an exaggeration. I pull weeds maybe twice a year. When I can't find Boy Scouts who are trying to raise money for camp, I end up having to pull the weeds. And we have a fire ant problem in our flower beds. Anybody here got fire ants? Okay, that, I was new to the fire ant experience before I moved to Texas. I can't... Oh my gosh. So I'm pulling weeds and you hit this mound and it just like a volcano, it erupts with this chaos of movement. And at first I didn't know you were supposed to run from that. So I'm thinking, I'm looking at them and I'm like watering and I'm like, oh, well the water will stop them. Those guys swam to get to my feet. And the sting is not the worst part. The sting kind of comes and goes. The worst part is the itching. After they sting you, it's like you feel almost like a leper, like you're going to just take the toe. I can't take it anymore. But when we stir up these fire ants, I don't see like these individual ants. I just see this, this sea of movement. But when God looks out of his throne 
and he looks down at us in heaven, he doesn't see a mass of humanity. He sees individual souls. He sees individual faces. He knows individual names. And that's so powerful to me that our God is always looking for the individual. He doesn't need a mass, a movement, a, a following, but he's always looking for the heart, the person, the one who he can lean on. And it's our privilege, your and I's privilege, to have the opportunity to be his hands, to be his feet, and to make his will on earth as it is in heaven. Because he doesn't really need help. We just established that. But he says, you know what? They will have a joy, and they will have a taste, and they will get hooked on it, and they'll know their calling and their purpose once they start doing it. So I want to use them. I want to equip them. And that's our privilege, that he looks to the individual. And he's been doing that since the dawn of time. You know, all the big heroes in the Bible, you think God needs a, 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 a group to kind of change history. But when you look back, he calls one man out, Abraham. He calls another man out, Noah. He calls one woman out, Deborah. She was a, a wife and turned judge and prophetess over Israel. He calls one man out, Paul. He calls another man out. And so God is always in the business of seeking the individual. He changes and uses the individual to change history and to shape the corporate. And there's one man that demonstrates this better than anybody else. And I stumbled across this video and I wanted to share it with you tonight. So take a look. You got it, babe. You got it.
love that. You know, I think it's so incredible that Jesus models so many things for us. So many things. But what he also models is the impact one life can have. Yes, he was fully God. God's one and only son, but also at the same time fully man. And every day he makes us into himself, makes us into his likeness so that we can have that same impact and that same ability for the Father to use us and establish his will on earth as it is in heaven. So I was thinking and praying and I was like, Lord, if you're going to continue like you always have to call people kind of out of obscurity, because the way you do things now is the way you did things then because you don't change. You never change. So what is the one defining quality? What's in the DNA of the people you pull out so that we'll be prepared in 2014 to be the one, to be the person that you call forward that you need to use, the hands and the feet, the mouth, just the presence. And so tonight, if you have your word, turn to uh, 2 Samuel 23, verse 9. And I'm going to talk tonight about uh, David's mighty men. And the reason I picked them is that they're a little bit, um, for me, relatable. Because we're going to talk about how they started. And I can kind of relate to how David's mighty men started. So let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, Father, we love you. We worship you. God, we thank you so much for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you don't see a mass of humanity, but you see individuals. You see names. You see faces. God, I thank you that you saw us before we were even born, and you saw the good plans and the work you had for us. Father, help us to walk in everything you have for us. Help us to to learn from the Holy Spirit tonight. Help the Holy Spirit to teach us and show us all things. We welcome him. We open our hearts to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, 2 Samuel 23, 9 through 12. And the reason I picked the mighty men, I could have picked a lot of people to talk about character sketches, but the reason I can relate to these guys is kind of how they got their start. They got their start it was in 1 Samuel, and David is on the run, you know, trying to get away from Saul, who's after him, to kill him, and he's hiding in these caves, and word gets around town and around the country that David's on the run for his life, and he's hiding in these caves, and it says that those who were discontented, indebted, and in distress came to him, and he became their leader, and the most elite fighting force probably recorded in scripture, started out with a bunch of men and women probably who were discontent, distressed, and indebted. And I don't know about you, but I can totally relate to a story that starts out like that. No parents, no connections, no amount of money, but I have had my fair share of indebtedness and maybe you're not indebted to money. Maybe you're indebted to a spirit of envy or maybe you're indebted to, you know, uh, inferiority. I can relate to somebody who's indebted. I can relate to somebody who starts out discontent. And I can certainly relate to somebody who starts out distressed or as we say today, stressed. So these guys, that's how they get their start. And their story is told throughout 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Chronicles. I mean, the stories are like lone survivor on steroids. You know what I mean? These guys do amazing things. And the author in 2 Samuel is kind of wrapping up the book, and he starts recounting, and he lists all the names of all the 30. It was like 30 plus. 
And then out of the 30 plus, there was this band of three that were the mightiest of the mighty. And that's who we're going to read about tonight. So 2 Samuel 23, 9 through 12. I'm going to turn to it here. It says here, next to him was Eleazar, son of Doath, the Aoite. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines, gathered it past Amem for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated, but he stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. Next to him was Shammah, son of Agi, the Herite. And when the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils. By the way, I ate lentils for the first time this week because of the Daniel's fast. It is amazing what starts to taste good after three weeks. It is amazing. Yeah, you guys are shaking your head like you don't believe it. I also fixed split pea soup. Yes, the ham hock adds a lot to that, and I did not use a ham hock this time. Totally different experience, but I digress. I'm sorry. Field full of lentils. Israel's troops fled from them, but Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it, and he struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. What I see in both of these guys, and I'm thinking, okay, now, Lord, you were there, what makes these guys great? And I, I started to chew on it and read it and reread it. And I'm thinking, okay, is it, a, is it the number of enemy that they struck down? No, because the other 30 had their fair share of kills. Okay, is it their parents? Did you make it a point to tell us who their parents were? No, it's not that. And I'm like, okay, what, what do both of these passages, what, what are the themes and the commonalities that I see in them? And I'm looking them over and looking them over, and I see this pattern. And the first one is that apparently Israel's troops tended to retreat a lot because <laughs> they did that two times to these guys, two different times. And the second thing is that when everybody else fled, they stood. <laughs> they stood. They went from this band of guys who were indebted and discontented and distressed, and through the power of God, they become these mighty warriors who, when everybody else is going to flee and run and take a hike, they have the courage to stand. And I'm thinking, well, gosh, they didn't even pick a, a defensible position. One guy standing in the middle of a field, he doesn't have rocks to cover him, he doesn't have trees to cover him, he doesn't have anybody to cover him and he's standing there and there's this onslaught of enemy and he holds his ground and I'm like gosh David didn't even stick around it doesn't say the king was there their commander wasn't there surely they had like brothers or brother-in-laws or friends in the army nobody they stood alone and when I look at people like Gideon, who God pulls out of obscurity, he says, behold, you mighty man of God. And Gideon starts looking around like, I think you've got the wrong guy. Remember, he makes all these excuses for why God has the wrong guy. Or he pulls Moses up. And Moses is slow in speech. He has a speech impediment, and he's killed a man. Or he pulls, you know, Paul up. And Paul's a zealot. <laughs> Paul's a zealot who maybe didn't stone anybody, but he held other people's coats while they did. 
And then he takes these mighty men of David's who are indebted and distressed and discontented, and he turns them into people who can hold a position that's indefensible. You know, sometimes I feel like you and I, we kind of discount ourselves as being used of the Lord because we figure we've got a flaw or we've got a hang-up that's too big. But when you look at it, the people God uses the most are the people with the hang-ups because he says, my grace is sufficient for you and my strength is made perfect in your weakness. It's sort of like a glass of water. If, you, if it's full of your ability and your talent and your confidence, there's not a whole lot that the Holy Spirit has to left to work with to rest on that. But when you're humble, when he says in his word that he gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud, then the Lord says, you know what? I got a little something I can work with here. Yeah, Moses, I know you're slow in speech. I'm glad you see that. I'm glad you see that you're inadequate and that you have to lean on me for that. Gideon, I get that you're just a farmer. I get that you're a farmer, that you thresh your wheat at night because you're kind of afraid of the marauders who are, who are torturing your country right now. But because you see that, I'm able to use that. You know, and David's mighty men, yeah, I know that you guys are indebted, distressed, and discontented. And because you see that, now there's capacity for me to use that. And I can turn you into something that you never thought possible in the natural because I specialize in that. That's powerful to me. And I think, God, you know, are you today in 2014 just looking for people, not what they can do, not what they can say, not their amazing talents, and he gives them to us and we receive them because it says that the Lord gives gifts without repentance. They are there for us to use, talents and gifts. But does he need people who are just willing to say, Lord, as flawed as I am, I think that qualifies me for you to use me because I can just hold this piece of ground. <laughs> when everybody else runs away, you can trust me to just hold this piece of ground and to know that you can work through me because your strength is made perfect in my weakness. You know, the thing about Eleazar, the first guy we just read about, is that it says that the troops returned to him to plunder the dead. And it takes a mighty, mighty man and woman of God not to resent the people who retreat from you, number one. And number two, it takes another mighty, mighty man of God, woman of God, to not be so obsessed with the plunder. God is not as interested in what you're going to get out of the battle the, the, the plunder you're going to get out of the battle. So right now you may be in a battle of, Lord, we need a job, we need a job, we need a job. Lord, I need a job. And you get the job, and you're like, thank you, Jesus, for the job. That's awesome. And I'm not belittling that, and I'm praising God with you for the job. But God's like, yeah, the job was always in the bag. I'm more impressed with the character that you've shaped. I'm more impressed with the way I could polish you and mold you and shape you. And I'm more impressed that you got to taste for a season that in your weakness, my strength was made perfect. That's what he's more interested in. And Eleazar is sitting in the battle, hand frozen to the sword. Says he killed 800 that day, I think. And he's sitting there, and his comrades are finally brave enough to come back. You know, now that everybody's dead. And they're obsessed with the plunder. But the man of God, his hand is frozen to the sword because he's obsessed with being a vessel and a tool of a holy God. He's like, oh, I'm never going back to distress, discontented. I'm never going back there. You guys have no idea what I just did. 
what I was just a part of, that I just played a role in. And that's what to me speaks to me. It's like, Lord, I don't want to be so focused on the plunder that I miss the people, that, I'm, that I miss the person that you're making me into. And that's what I'm excited about. You know, when you open the word and you talk about the folks who made the jump from just believers to hall of famers, and you know, Paul writes about them in Hebrews 11, and I think, God, you know, there were so many people that you couldn't write about, you know, that Paul says, I don't have the time to tell you all of them. And I think, well, God, how did these people make the jump from just believers to hall of famers? And I'm going to read it to you tonight, and it's Hebrews 11, 32, and 34. And it says, and what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, individual people subdued kingdoms, because they were able to be worked, the Holy Spirit and the power of God were able to work through them. They worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Individual people did this. Quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, and turned to flight the armies of the aliens. You know, I see all of these people that become Hall of Famers. You know, we're about to have the NFL, Super Bowl, and all the Hall of Famers come out. And what makes Paul, you know, record these people and their exploits, and the way they go from believer to Hall of Famer, is that it says here, out of weakness they were made strong. The same thing that made David's mightiest men the most incredible warriors we've ever seen was that they were indebted, discontent, and distressed. The thing that makes Moses this amazing leader, that makes Abraham this leader, this, these amazing thing, is that they're in their weakness they were made strong, and they became valiant in battle. I think like sometimes I kind of dread my battles. I can kind of sense them coming. I'm not a big confrontationalist. I know you guys probably don't believe that. You know, I haven't read what's written on the bathroom walls or anything. But I'm not a big confrontationalist. You know, but if it knocks on my door, I'll answer, you know. But what you guys laugh, Issa laughs. It's never knocked on my door, Issa, never. But I'm sitting there and I'm thinking they became valiant in battle. A lot of us were dreading our battle. Like, oh, gosh, I don't want to go through that. Oh, Lord, I kind of see it coming. Oh, gosh, I see it coming. But the thing about it is it's in the battle that these people became valiant. It was when they were in the stress of the conflict that their weakness bubbled to the surface and his strength became even more real, that he was able to prove himself stronger and stronger and stronger. The mighty men thought they were pretty good fighters when they went out in legions and they went out in groups, but they saw an entirely different level when they were standing alone, facing a horde of the enemy. And for you and I, sometimes we kind of dread that battle and we see it coming and we know it's going to be hard, but our promise in Hebrews is that, that we become valiant in battle, that we have a supernatural courage, that we have an unexplained honor, that we can't explain our strength because of this transformation that happens when we're in the heat of the battle. 
And so I'm trying to change the way I kind of look at my conflicts and the kind of way I look at my challenges and my battles. I think, Lord, are you drawing me out to a field? Not to meet Philistines. We don't meet Philistines anymore. But are you drawing me out to a place where you're going to bring my weakness to the surface so that you can just show yourself strong? Not just to me, but to the people who are watching me, to the people who, who are trying to see if you really are the living God. You know, maybe that's what it's about with the battle. Maybe that's what changes when you become a mighty man to the mightiest men, or when you become sort of this believer to this hall of famer. So just rest in that, that when you feel like, oh, man, I got another one coming. I just fought this fight that maybe it's not about the prize at the end of the fight. Maybe it's about the spit polish God's putting on your character. Maybe it's about the opportunity he sees to work out a little bit of that dross. Maybe it's the opportunity he sees to show some Philistines in your life. You know what? She doesn't have much, but she has enough. And she's got all she needs for me to work with her. She's got all she needs for me to turn this country, this community, this family upside down. Because I'm really not in the business of having to have a lot. I'm in the business of having to have one. That's the way our God sees it. And that's what qualifies each of us to be used of him. You know, I was um, thinking about Paul and, and how he writes in Ephesians 6. And I was like, Lord, you know, when those men are standing there and the hordes are coming at them, you know, how could they stand alone? How, how do you face that by yourself? And I felt in my spirit the Lord say, they were never alone. They just couldn't see the angels pushing the enemy into their sword. You know, for you and I, we're never alone. We never stand by ourselves. We're never in a place where we can't um, feel the presence of the Lord. You know, I love that, I think it's Oswald Chambers says that there is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. You know, when the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace, there was a fourth man in the fire. You're never alone. The mightiest men, scripture, and the guy who's recording the story just didn't have the spiritual goggles on to see who was else on the field. You know, and I liked it where the prophet said, open my servant's eyes. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and it was like he could finally see all the chariots of fire and all the angels kind of waiting to help and lend a hand in the fight of the enemy because the enemy looked overwhelming. And he's like, I don't know how this is going to work out. Or with Gideon. You know, Gideon had a great army, and the Lord told him to send 9,700 of them home. And so 300 guys with pitchers and basically big lighters <laughs> stand there and they're like, I don't know how this is going to work out. But if they could have seen in the eyes of the spiritual, they would have known, oh, I'm not really alone here. And I'm not really here to fight this battle with a clay pot and a Bic lighter. There's a whole lot more going on here than I see. And for you and I, when we stand out there in the middle of our field and we feel like, gosh, there's nobody else with me. The troops just deserted me. That's a bad feeling. I can imagine Eliezer standing out there ready to take his position, and then he looks to his left, and he looks to his right, and he's like, I used to not be alone. Or the other guy, when he's standing in the middle of the field, are you sure you guys want to stand here? Yes, these lentils are great to hide behind. And then everybody else retreats. 
Sometimes you and I, we get all the way out there and we're like, yeah, our friends are like, we can do this. We're going to charge the gates of hell with a water pistol. And then we get out there to do it. And we look to the left and the right and we're like, wait a second, where did everybody go? When you feel alone, you never are alone. And the good news is, is that the armor that you have is much better than the armor that the guys use in David's army and with his mighty men. Ephesians 6 says that finally be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil and heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when you take your stand, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And I'm like, Holy Spirit, you're so good. Because you were there in 2 Samuel, and now you're here when Paul's writing Ephesians, and you're saying the same thing. Stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm. I'm like, stand, stand, stand. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking about the the gospel, and when we're called out just to stand, the first thing that typically goes for me are my feet. Anybody been shopping for like hours on end and your feet start killing you? Yeah, none of the guys raised their hand. You know, the first thing to go is your feet. If your feet hurt, it's all over. You can't do anything else. You're like throwing the towel, it's over. And so I wear probably not the most fashionable shoes, but I just love having comfortable feet. I'm like a slave to my toes, not a slave to fashion, you know? And so I'm, I'm sitting there. I love those uh, Clarks. Anybody here love the Clarks? Yes. Or the Uggs? Anybody Uggs here? What is, it, what is that other shoe that's got like the, the straps and the hippies wore them in the 60s? Yes. Uh, what are they? Somebody, I don't know, the Birkenstocks and then like the feet, how your feet feel, like affect everything else. Like I could walk for miles as long as my feet feel good. But you get me in a pair of shoes that like pinch my toes, I walk like 15 feet. I'm like, I'm out. I'll see you guys at the food court. Goodbye. I'm done. And my kids are the same way and they're so melodramatic about it. I'm so tired. I have not eaten in 30 minutes. I'm you know, their feet are killing them, their legs are tired. And the first thing for us to go when we're having to stand our ground is typically our feet. We just get plain old tired, y'all. And I love that Paul says that our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I can stand anywhere for any length of time as long as my feet feel good. And when we're standing there and we're drawn out on this battle and we're facing this enemy, our feet feel great because we're standing in peace. You know, the, that peace isn't the absence of conflict. Peace is where you have a supernatural covering and a supernatural peace that covers all understanding while you're in the middle of this conflict. 
you're thinking to yourself, I should not feel this good right now. I should not have this much peace when I've got that many bills due. I should not have this much peace when I'm not sure where my son is. I should not have this much peace when I'm not entirely sure that my marriage is going to make it another 30 days. But when your feet are shod with a gospel of peace, you don't even notice the conflict because your legs are strong for the task. You know, I think that's almost more important than the sword of the spirit or the shield of faith. Because the gospel says, I just got to stand my ground, stand my ground, stand my ground, stand my ground. And he says, the Lord brought about a great victory that day. I was praying about this message and the Lord brought to my remembrance this scene from a movie that I probably saw like 15 years ago. But when I try to picture like, okay, what's, what's Paul trying to describe? This scene came up. And uh, I think it probably pretty accurately describes what we face. Go ahead and play it. Go back to the shadow. about you guys, but when Paul's talking and he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, you and I aren't going to be facing down any Philistines. But Paul says, but we wrestle against the devil's schemes, against principalities and powers in high places. I'm like, I'm pretty sure the director got that one right. <laughs> that looks pretty authentic to me. And some of you are standing here tonight sitting here tonight and you're like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I stared at that guy over my cereal bowl this morning. I saw that guy. I want to encourage you that just like that hero in the story just stood, that that's what you and I do, that we just stand. And the enemy, as much as he tries, can't get through it. He can't get around it. Because it's not just you standing there. It's you standing there with the power of Christ resting on you the blood of Jesus resting on you, and he can't even touch it. You know, we just showed our son the Star Wars movies, you know, the original one with um, Mark Hamill, I think is his name, and we're not going to introduce him into the prequels because we don't want to ruin it for him. You know, we're just going to stick with the original Star Wars. When he's older, he'll make his own decisions, but for now. And I was tucking him into bed, and he said, Mom, what keeps bad things out of our house? And I said, well, mommy and daddy pray and we ask the Holy Spirit to protect our house. And he said, oh, so it's like a force field, just like Star Wars has, you know, they put the shields up. I'm like, that's exactly what it is. You know, when you and I stand, there's like this force field. There's this presence, it's that my strength is made perfect in your weakness and it just envelops us. And the enemy huffs and he puffs and he's this lion and he's wanting to devour us, but he can't get past it and he can't get through it and he can't get around it. And we just stand there and the Lord brings about a great victory. 